Good morning again, everybody. It's a great time of worship, amen? Thank you again to our... There we go. How's that sound? should be on now. Okay. Um, we have been working our way through a series um, that I am preparing to speak again at a camp uh, in a couple of weeks. And the series is the titled Dear Friend. And we've been kind of looking at the different ways that the Bible teaches us about friendship. And we've kind of focused in. Uh, if you remember back to week one, we looked at uh, John 15 and the idea that Jesus, in talking to his disciples prior to the cross, he says, I have called you friends. And uh, we've been taking a look at what that really means. You know, some of us don't always feel like friendship material, right? Especially in relation to God. Sometimes we feel like we let him down and sometimes we feel like he's distant and we kind of wonder what that relationship really looks like. And so we've been kind of walking our way through that. And um, today I'm going to pick up on that theme of dear friend, but we're going to look at the idea of, uh, I've titled it friendship fallout, right? What, what happens when friendships kind of break down? What happens in our lives when, when we're walking along and all of a sudden, like out of the blue, like what just happened, right? I thought things were really good and then all of a sudden like, bam, and something just kind of breaks down and and it just goes south in a hurry. This topic also kind of means a lot to me in the sense, uh, in this sense, you know, we live in a world where it is hard to have a healthy conflict. Can anybody say amen? It is hard to figure out, to navigate ways to be in a healthy relationship and disagree with one another or to still get along even though we kind of feel like we're on different sides of the same issue. And how do we have healthy conflict? And so as you're kind of thinking along with me this morning, you can kind of think about it from both of those angles. First thought I think that we should start with this morning is relationships are often filled with conflict. And um, I think we can kind of all relate to that. As I was doing some digging and and thinking about this topic, I came across a a gentleman by the name of Dr. Paul Tripp, and uh, he's an author, a speaker, a professor, a a biblical theologian, a biblical counselor, and um, he says, you know, the idea that we would have conflict in our world should not surprise us. And yet, how many of you get surprised by a little bit of a breakdown here and there, right? But, but conflict, if we were to go all the way back, and, and we are students of the Bible, so we go all the way back to Genesis, and within like a very short period of time, there's conflict going on, isn't there? It's called the fall. Like in church, we call it the fall and, and all of that sort of thing. And, and so right from Genesis chapter 3, if you want to go all the way from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 we see Adam and Eve do something that rebels against what God told them to do. There's this sense that it would be okay, like kind of get convinced. And and what happens from that point forward, immediately they get confronted by God, don't they? They get confronted, and, and what starts happening? Oftentimes, this still happens today, right? Finger pointing, doesn't it, right? Oh, the, the devil made me do it. Or, oh, she made me do it. Or, oh, he made me do it. Or, 
where's the, the ownership, right? Right from Genesis chapter 3, we have this idea that conflict is filling the world that we live in now. We move over to Genesis chapter 4. Now, we're four chapters in. We're, we're not that far into creation. And what do we have? Some of you will remember we have the first murder. Murder. Right? Early, early, early. In the biblical narrative, we see conflict arising out of perfection because of willful, sinful rebellion and and that sort of thing. So uh, we may not be, Dr. Tripp says it this way, we may not be convicted murderers. And I'm glad to say I don't know anybody in here that fits that bill, all right? So we may not be convicted murderers, but we have been living in conflict-ridden relationships ever since the fall. And we do our fair share to contribute to that every single day. Let's just take a look at, I want to look at three different ways that conflict occurs within relationships. So the first one, I've kind of put it under this idea. Some conflicts are unintentional. We can kind of relate, and I'll kind of explain that. Some conflicts are unintentional, but they still hurt Let me point you to a story in Acts. We've been looking at Acts. Last week we looked at the story of Barnabas and Ananias and their encouraging ways with Saul and kind of helping him to become Paul. So we're going to pick up in Acts, and I'll come back to Barnabas in a second. But let's just look at Acts 6, 1 through 4. Now this is the early church, you know, the, the church that we all hold up and say, That was great. Could we kind of relive that experience, right? The Acts 2, 3, and 4 church, we say that was the ideal, many of us in in the church. We're kind of like everybody was together and they were eating together and breaking bread and giving and sharing and all. And it was like the ideal church. Well, in Acts chapter 6, we read this. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, those were the Greek Jews, uh, among them complained, the Greek-speaking Jews, that's what I should say, they're not Greek Jews, but anyway, You got it, right? Then complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So right here in the early church, we've got complaining going on. Let's see. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, "It it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So I started to think about it. What would that look like? That story. What would that look like in our church? And it might look like this. Maybe some of our African members would come to the leadership team and they would say, uh, some of the, the African members in our church are being overlooked in some of the ministries and some of the service that is happening within the context of our church. And they would talk to the leadership team because um, that's a little bit unfair. Like something's happening here. There's a disparity that's happening within our church. So that's, that's what's going on here in the early church. And, and some would say, like we like to say in church, right, well, that's a good problem to have, right? How many have said that before? Like, that's a good problem. We're growing and there's things that are happening and it's a good... But the, the reality, it's still a problem, right? And sometimes we, we gloss over, we use that phrase, it's a good problem to have and we forget that it's still a problem. So we have to address that. And that's what the disciples chose to do here. 
um, those who have been there all along, in this case the Hebraic Jews, the, the Jews that have kind of been there all throughout, they, I think what's going on is they got some blind spots, right? They got some things that are happening in their life that are changing them, that are stretching them, that are causing them to grow, but the reality is that they don't see it. They're, they're not quite sensitized to it because they've been doing things the same way for a long time. And it just maybe didn't even occur to them that there would be some disparities in the way things would happen. And maybe in some cases, they're actually culturally conditioned to have some of these differences. And they don't even become aware. We call those blind spots. And I think we, we can't gloss over that, right? Growth and growth spiritually and then growth in a church and growth in, in the different ways that, that we grow, sometimes it has a way of exposing some of those blind spots that we have inside of us, some of those stereotypes. And we peel back the layers and we're like, okay, what are we going to do about that now? And truly, it is a good problem to have, but it is still a problem that we have to work through. But rather than dividing, what does this story tell us? Rather than dividing, we come together. We come together and we acknowledge that there's a problem and we begin to work through it and find a way through it. So remember, these are conflicts in relationship that are unintentional. They don't think that the Hebraic Jews were intentionally, but they could have been, Let's leave room for that, right? They could have been intentionally overlooking their Greek-speaking brothers and sisters. But let's just assume the best here. Assume best intent. We like to do that around here. So let's assume the best, and let's just say that was unintentional, but nonetheless, it still hurts. Lucy Mall, she's a a biblical counselor from the Biblical Counseling Center. She wrote a blog, and she said uh, the, the blog's title was Handling Conflict Well in Friendship. She described several different ways that unintentional hurt can happen from a variety of different normal activities, routine activities. A careless remark. Something you just said and didn't even think about, right? A careless remark or a forgotten forgotten invitation. Anybody have ever been there, forgot to show up to something? Unexplained silence. A last-minute canceled plan. A misunderstanding. And I read that list and I'm like, I'm guilty of all of them. So I wanted to make sure you all pray for me this morning. I literally am guilty of all of them. And, and I started to think about like that unexplained silence. That has been something that plagues me. Because when I get into conflict, I, I tend to withdraw into my mind. It's not that I totally withdraw, but I get into my mind and I start having conversations with myself. How am I going to resolve this conflict, right? And I, and I work it out in my mind, but not necessarily with the person I'm in conflict with. And there have been prolonged seasons of my own journey where I have been pretty rude with my silence. Partly intentional, I have to admit. It was partly intentional. But it was also unintentional. Because there is this aspect of that, I don't know. I don't know how to get this out. I don't know how to communicate. I don't know the approach that I should take. I liked what 
Lucy Mall said in that particular context. She said, you know, that those unintentional moments, those times when we're in conflict with somebody, we don't really know what's going on. We don't mean to hurt them, but we are hurting them, those sorts of things. It should remind those of us on the receiving end, and ultimately those of us who are dishing it out, right? It should remind us that we are all part of this fallen world. We have to take a step back. We have to step back and recognize our part, but also to recognize and extend grace because none of us are perfect. None of us are above reproach. None of us check all the boxes all of the time. Sometimes in friendship, we hold people or our friends to a standard that they can't achieve. It's a standard that is unattainable to anyone, including ourselves. We sort of assume that they can never make a mistake. And when they do, like we really hold them accountable because we're hurt, right? We are hurt. And that's something that we have to learn how to process. We know it's not right to hold them to that standard. And I get that. We know that that's not right. But we still get offended and we get hurt. And and then sometimes we dish out hurt in return. We have a choice. We have a choice in these moments. And that is to either let go of it or hold on to it. We have that choice. And I came across this verse in 1 Peter, the end of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. It says, love covers over a multitude of sins. These are the times, these are the relationships, these are the situations where we must extend that love. We must assume, and, and I've said this before, the, the paychecks motto, right? We ABI, assume best intent. Like We have to extend that love and that grace to others to begin to unravel what just happened in our relationships. We assume the best intent. And it's not always true. Sometimes there is some malicious activity there, but we'll talk about that in a minute. For, for now, for this point, let's, let's recognize that we must extend that love. And if we are the offender, as I have been on more than one occasion, we definitely need to extend that particular love. Sometimes we are going to have to be the one that takes the first step. In fact, many times we are. Whether we are the offender or the one being offended, we have to sometimes take that first step. Not harshly, not in an effort to make somebody feel guilty, but to open the door for conversation. So remember, that's, that's in the context of a relationship that causes unintentional hurt. But let's recognize that there is a situation sometimes where conflicts are intentional. But these are conflicts that are intentional that actually are instructive. So, let's look at another story in Scripture. And I'm going to draw from Galatians in this particular situation. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is a conflict now between Paul and Peter. Two pillars of the church. Two apostles recognized biblically. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This is a fascinating story. This is a fascinating story. And and in some ways, the future of the church hinged on this particular moment. I don't have time to do a full Bible study on this particular passage, but I looked at it extensively this week, and there's a lot that we could talk about here. But what's at stake? Let's, let's talk about just what's at stake, because this is an intentional conflict, and it's instructive, and it's necessary. Most commentators believe that what's at stake here and what Paul's really driving at is the unity of the church. If Peter's way, withdrawing, to avoid conflict and keep some of the Jews happy who wanted circumcision and and just kind of keeping the peace. If Peter's way had become the norm, then circumcision might always be a prerequisite to inclusion and to unity. That's kind of what's going on here. Peter could have withdrawn and and stayed withdrawn and, and basically anybody who wasn't circumcised would kind of be on the outside looking in unless they wanted to go through that procedure, right? But the implication of the language used here is not, and and this is in my opinion, and some scholars have argued otherwise, but it's not that Paul is trying to convey some sort of power struggle. We need to not be misreading this passage. It's not there's a, a power struggle or that he's even questioning Peter's authority per se. In fact, the word translated as hypocrisy in most of your Bibles, and we just read it here in the NIV, is probably not uh, the best translation. It's a bit misleading. It conjures up the idea of Peter uh, is putting on a false front, right? That's the idea of hypocrisy. He's like, all of a sudden, he's being somebody who he's not. And you get this idea that he's, he's kind of being something that he shouldn't be. But the better translation, uh, and I read this according to Charles Couser. Uh, he's a, a biblical commentator. The better translation, it can be word for the word hypocrisy, is insincere. Insincere. In fact, I I was reading along, and and it it made much more sense. So I tend to agree with him that um, in this particular case, Paul's concern is, is not that Peter is insincere, but that he is very sincere and is blind to the full import of his actions. There's a blind spot. A blind spot in this particular situation. In other words, he's likely affirming, Paul is, the intentions of Peter for keeping unity in the church, but he's challenging his methods because of their long-term and deeper theological implications. In other words, if Peter pulls back now, and the likes of Barnabas and some of the other Jews are persuaded, then the message of the unity of the church will always be something other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's huge. That's huge. That laid the foundation for everything that followed. So you can see that a conflict in this particular case was essential. And there have been many such conflicts and debates 
ever since, all throughout church history. Was Jesus truly divine? Or was He begotten of the Father and therefore not one with the Father? And how reliable is the Bible? Let's, should we trust the apostles or the canon or the rules of faith? And was Trinity, was, what is the Trinity? And, and can we rely on the Trinity? And where is that in Scripture? These are the kinds of debates that have been had all throughout church history. And sometimes it brought up significant conflict. So much so that the church has divided many times throughout our history, sadly. Since Christ left the earth, those who have become his followers have taken quite seriously the need to define who he was and what we should believe. It's essential to our faith. And that is what Paul is doing in this particular passage. He's writing to the Galatians, of course, telling them of a conflict that he had with Peter to make a point about a deep theological and doctrinal truth that would become the bedrock upon which the church would stand. You can imagine how awkward it might have been. You can imagine how uncomfortable it would have been because he says he did it right out and open. It was public, right? But he confronted him to his face. And I'm sure, and Scripture even says, there were people on both sides of this particular issue. But in the end, there was a position that was right, that was necessary, and it needed to be articulated and debated and then codified for the church or the church would struggle to achieve any of the unity that Christ had prayed for. So, Sometimes, we need to be able to have conflict for the cause of the greater good. So that's the second point. Some conflicts are unintentional, but they still hurt. We have to find ways to work through them. Love becomes the mode, right? Some conflicts, in this case, are intentional, but they're instructive. They're necessary. And sometimes we have to be willing to have those conflicts for the sake of the greater good. The third point this morning is that sometimes conflicts are intentional, they're not instructive, and they just plain hurt. Anybody relate? Anybody been in that kind of a conflict before? Let's go back to Barnabas for a minute. Paul and Barnabas, they had been through a lot together. They'd gone on a full missionary journey together. The first missionary journey that we read about in Acts chapter 13, 14. Um, They've had some near-death experiences. Paul's been stoned. Uh, They've preached the gospel in new places. They've risked their lives together. Barnabas was this mentor to Paul, this, this open door for him to become Paul, right? This open door from the guy that was persecuting the church to becoming now the 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 expositor of, of who Jesus really was. And Barnabas was his mentor and opened the doors. And sometimes we call Barnabas the relational one. And Paul's kind of the the theological heady one, right? And we can talk about who they were. But um, let's just read about this story. So here's here's another conflict. This comes from Acts chapter 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, now this is after the Jerusalem council, and 
They're getting ready to potentially go on another missionary journey. Uh, Paul said to Barnabas, let's, us go, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. And I'll stop there and I'll say we know from Colossians, another letter, right? We know that John, Mark, was Barnabas' cousin. So keep that in mind, all right? But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So this goes all the way back to the first missionary journey. They had such a sharp disagreement, this is Paul and Barnabas, that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. After all they'd been through, this first missionary journey, this bonding experience, and all they'd seen the Lord do through them, now they're ready to go back and do this all over again, and, and they're coming to sharp dispute. There's a conflict. So much so that they part company. Barnabas takes his cousin and goes on to his home territory. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And so Barnabas takes his family member and goes on to Cyprus and they start doing their work there. And we don't hear much about him again. He comes up a little bit later. But we don't hear much about Barnabas again. Paul grabs Silas and he goes kind of to his home territory and and he starts preaching there and kind of checking in on the churches that they had seen in the first missionary journey. So they part company. What were they disputing? It says it kind of right there, but let's just go back and, and look at what they were disputing. In Acts chapter 13, it says this. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. This is on the front end of the first missionary journey. We don't really know why John Mark left. It's, it's really kind of a bit of a mystery. Was he homesick? Was he young? Was he kind of looking at all of this and saying, I want to go back to Jerusalem, I want to stay in Cyprus? What was going through his mind, we don't really know. But we do know that he's family. And we do know the power and the bond of family, don't we? We know that sometimes family kind of takes priority in some of these situations. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So we know that we've got family going on here. And Barnabas wants to give his cousin a second chance. Barnabas is, is looking at this opportunity to reclaim a little bit about that first missionary journey and that opportunity for John Mark to reclaim his, his status a little bit and, and learn from his mistakes. And Paul's like, uh-uh. That, that message that you sent the first time, that message, I, I don't know what that's going to mean for the churches when you left the first time and we're now about to, to take off. I don't know what that means. And you know what? I, didn't, I don't like it. I don't want to get out there the second time and have you do the same thing. And so Paul's kind of holding on to some stuff, isn't he? We don't know. We, we don't know exactly what's going on there. But uh, will Mark leave again? We don't know. But it causes such a difference of opinion that they decide to part company. We think about in our own lives when changes happen, 
When things happen in our lives, there's breakdowns in our relationships, breakdowns in expectations. Think about your own journey. The crossroads that you come to with your friends and even with your family. Sometimes they decide to take a journey that's different than yours. The the journey that you've walked all along, they kind of look at it and they say, that isn't right for me anymore. Think about the LGBT issue. How many relationships that has divided because people fall on different sides and don't know how to communicate with each other. Think about when somebody goes through a divorce and you didn't necessarily agree with the reasoning behind that divorce and how do you reconcile that relationship together? Or maybe your, your friends kind of get a little bit more vocal about things that you'd rather be kind of behind the scenes about. And you're not quite sure how to relate to them. And they're like saying all kinds of stuff in, in public. And you're like, I, I don't know. Like, and, and you're just not quite even sure how to have that relationship anymore. Maybe your friend just falls off the deep end into some kind of excessive or illicit behavior. And like, can I still, how, like, what do we do? What do we do when those conflicts arise in our relationships and we don't know where things are going? All of those ways and and many others. And it kind of brought up for me a relationship that I've had. It's, It's a difficult relationship. Goes back all the way to my days in college. And I invested a ton into that relationship. And this person invested a ton into who I am. And I wouldn't be who I am without the investment of that person. And and something happened a few years ago. And something happened. Something changed. Because I... Not because of anything that I did, but, but maybe just opening my eyes and seeing what was going on all along and kind of recognizing that there's... There's now something different, and and I don't know. I stand before you this morning unreconciled in that relationship. I confess, because I don't know how to restore that. There's a part of me that wants to forgive. There's a part of me that wants to let it go, but there's also a part of me that wants to to see that there's some ownership on the other side, and and I'm stuck in this middle ground. Do Do I just extend forgiveness and kind of pretend that we can move forward or do I expect something and I get lost? I think in some ways our way through it depends on the tie that binds us together. As I was thinking about this, there are some friends that you've had, friends for life, right? Friends who experience changes as they grow older and things just kind of happen, but But you know, because you've been that friend through life, that that friendship is worth fighting for. Whether you disagree or agree, you know that that relationship is worth fighting for. Because there's points of commonality, there's points of history, there's points of of what has shaped you into who you are, and you want to fight for that. But sometimes, sometimes there are just relationships that were kind of formed around an issue. Sometimes you, you coalesced around something that you wanted to do together or you, you became friends casually first and then you kind of you started to do some things together and, and maybe 
maybe the, the tie isn't quite as significant. Maybe a breakdown in that kind of a relationship is, is sort of inevitable. But think about it. In Paul and Barnabas's case, uh, this dispute put them at odds about their own beliefs, about the success of this next missionary journey. Paul seems, again, we don't totally know this, but Paul seems to have chosen mission over relationship, while Barnabas appears to have chosen relationship and family over mission. I think, personally, that that sounds a little critical of Barnabas, overly critical. That's not my intent. Both, I think, cared about a mission, right? Both had a, a view of how to carry that out and how to continue investing each other to get it done. And those views somehow just weren't compatible in that particular moment. If you really want to look at it on the positive side, look at how God used the separation now to advance the kingdom and advance the gospel in significant ways. So, no matter where you find yourself in that relationship, whether you choose to work through the differences or whether parting ways sort of becomes inevitable, the major work to be done in each of our hearts is in the area of forgiveness. Sometimes we just want our feelings to be made known. We want our positions to be made known. We, we want our emotions to to be worked through and to be processed. And the big key is that we don't let bitterness take root. We can't let bitterness take root. We have to extend love over hate. Let me tell you a quick story and then I'll finish up. Denzel Lewis and Kadri Allison, they lived in Niagara Falls a few years ago. They had grown up there. They had once attended middle school together. They considered themselves friends. As high school and growing sometimes do, the distance between them had grown, but as with many friends in a smaller high school, uh, you still know, you kind of generally call most of your long-term classmates some kind of friend, right? Think back to your own story. On October 14th, 2017, everything changed. A dispute broke out between Denzel, now 22, and Kadri's older brother, Laron Harris. He was 35. Denzel shot Harris three times in a gas station parking lot and killed him. To this day, we still don't really know why. The family was devastated, and, and Kadri who was playing football at the time for the University of Pittsburgh as a running back, was shocked. He had recently been introduced to the Bible through, I think, something like an intervarsity situation, and he was actively pursuing his faith, his studies, and his passion for football. But he was at a crossroads. He never really considered leaving school, but he had considered, how do I move forward? How do I stay focused? How do I continue competing? He's in the middle of his football season. And I'll spare all the details, but his choice came down to forgiveness. He wrote in a letter 
at the sentencing of Denzel one year later. He wrote this. For some reason, you thought it was right to go and gun down my brother that morning of October 14. You had that choice. My brother at gunpoint didn't have a choice to live. It wasn't up to him. He lost the two greatest things God gives us as people. He lost the ability to choose, and he lost his life. Now here I am, and I have this choice to hate you or not, and I choose not to. I don't hate you, Denzel. I hate what you did, most certainly. But I still think your life is just as precious as the next person's. No life means more than another's. None of us are perfect. Back in April of this year, 2019, Kadri became a fifth-round draft pick of the Atlanta Falcons, where he'll try to make the team for this upcoming year. You can follow his story. And in an interview with ESPN, he was quoted as saying this, I believe you can't live with hate in your heart. You can't move on from something with hate in your heart. Some of us here this morning have been confronted with some very difficult things in our lives, and we've been confronted with the same choice. Do we live into hating those who have hurt us, left us, or pursue, pursued a path that we disagree with? Or do we still love them and pray for them? Can we forgive? Even if there is no hope or desire for reconciliation. Friends have a choice to forgive. And I think in this case, this is the instructive verse for this point. Colossians 3.13 says this, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I was praying about that this morning and I told my wife about the situation in my own heart. I don't think I can any longer sit before God and ask Him to forgive me when I'm unable to find it in my own heart to forgive this other person in my life. I don't think those two things work together. So let me wrap this up. Relationships will have conflict. It's been a part of our world since the fall. We must be aware of our own limitations and extend love and grace just as Christ did for us. We must not shy away from conflict when it's called for, but we must do it directly and keep it right on point. Don't make it personal. It may even be necessary. And when friendships do break, and there's hurt, and there's pain, we must seek to forgive over time. We must work to not let that hatred build in our hearts. The future of the relationship should not depend on bitterness and reconciliation, but on the merits and the points of commonality that you have in that relationship. It may not be reasonable to remain connected, but it is never reasonable to turn a good friend into an enemy. 
I'd like to give us a few minutes right now to explore our own hearts and explore the things that are going on as you hear these words. Maybe the Lord has brought to mind a relationship in your own life that is something that you still need to work through. And if that's not the case, I would encourage you to pray for others among you because inevitably, if it's not you, it's somebody next to you. Conflicts happen. So let's just spend a few minutes in prayer. The worship team will come. This is an opportunity for you. Going back to that card, this is where the prayer time comes in. And if you would like to be prayed for, you can write down just a little note of how we can pray for you on that card. But you don't have to. You can write your own notes. You can just spend some time in prayer. The altars are open. I will stand up here if you'd like me to pray for you. The worship team will play for a few minutes and then they will sing a song. You're free to join in with that song in just a couple of minutes. And then we'll close our service. Just take a few minutes and just let the Spirit work in our hearts.